Section 15 of Myths and Legends. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lucy LaFaro, New South Wales, Australia. Myths and Legends of Ancient Greece and Rome by E. M. Behrens. Section 15 Third Dynasty Night and Her Children Nix through Eros and Psyche Nix Nox Nix, the daughter of Chaos, being the personification of night, was, according to the poetic ideas of the Greeks, considered to be the mother of everything mysterious and inexplicable, such as death, sleep, dreams, etc. She became united to Erebus, and their children were Aether and Hemera, air and daylight, evidently a simile of the poets, to indicate that darkness always precedes light. Nix inhabited a palace in the dark regions of the lower world, and is represented as a beautiful woman seated in a chariot drawn by two black horses. She is clothed in dark robes, wears a long veil, and is accompanied by the stars, which follow in her train. Thanatos, Mors, and Hypnus, Somnus. Thanatos, Death, and his twin brother Hypnus, Sleep, were the children of Nyx. Their dwelling was in the realm of shades, and when they appear among mortals, Thanatos is feared and hated as the enemy of mankind, whose hard heart knows no pity, while his brother Hypnus is universally loved and welcomed as their kindest and most beneficent friend. But though the ancients regarded Thanatos as a gloomy and mournful divinity, they did not represent him with any exterior repulsiveness. On the contrary, he appears as a beautiful youth, who holds in his hand an inverted torch, emblematical of the light of life being extinguished whilst his disengaged arm is thrown lovingly round the shoulder of his brother Hypnus. Hypnus is sometimes depicted standing erect with closed eyes. At others, he is in a recumbent position beside his brother Thanatos, and usually bears a poppy-stalk in his hand. A most interesting description of the abode of Hypnus is given by Ovid in his Metamorphoses. He tells us how the god of sleep dwelt in a mountain cave near the realm of the Sumerians, which the sun never pierced with his rays. No sound disturbed the stillness, no song of birds, not a branch moved, and no human voice broke the profound silence which reigned everywhere. From the lowermost rocks of the cave issued the river Lethe, and one might almost have supposed that its course was arrested were it not for the low, monotonous hum of the water, which invited slumber. The entrance was partially hidden by numberless white and red poppies, which Mother Night had gathered and planted there, and from the juice of which she extracts drowsiness, which she scatters in liquid drops all over the earth, as soon as the sun-god has sunk to rest. In the centre of the cave stands a couch of blackest ebony, with a bed of down, over which is laid a coverlet of sable hue. Here the god himself reposes, 
surrounded by innumerable forms. These are idle dreams, more numerous than the sands of the sea. Chief among them is Morpheus, that changeful god, who may assume any shape or form he pleases. Nor can the god of sleep resist his own power. For though he may rouse himself for a while, he soon succumbs to the drowsy influences which surround him. Morpheus Morpheus, the son of Hypnus, was the god of dreams. He is always represented winged, and appears sometimes as a youth, sometimes as an old man. In his hand he bears a cluster of poppies, and as he steps with noiseless footsteps over the earth, he gently scatters the seeds of this sleep-producing plant over the eyes of weary mortals. Homer describes the house of dreams as having two gates, one whence issue all deceptive and flattering visions, being formed of ivory, the other through which proceed those dreams which are fulfilled of horn. THE GORGONS The Gorgons, Stheno, Uriali, and Medusa, were the three daughters of Phorces and Ceto, and were the personification of those benumbing and, as it were, petrifying sensations which result from sudden and extreme fear. They were frightful winged monsters, whose bodies were covered with scales, hissing, wriggling snakes, cluttered round their heads instead of hair. Their hands were of brass, their teeth resembled the tusks of a wild boar, and their whole aspect was so appalling that they are said to have turned into stone all who beheld them. These terrible sisters were supposed to dwell in that remote and mysterious region in the far west, beyond the sacred stream of Oceanus. The Gorgons were the servants of Aedes, who made use of them to terrify and overawe those shades, doomed to be kept in a constant state of unrest as a punishment for their misdeeds, whilst the Furies, on their part, scourged them with their whips and tortured them incessantly. The most celebrated of the three sisters was Medusa, who alone was mortal. She was originally a golden-haired and very beautiful maiden, who, as a priestess of Athene, was devoted to a life of celibacy. But, being wooed by Poseidon, whom she loved in return, she forgot her vows, and became united to him in marriage. For this offence she was punished by the goddess in a most terrible manner. Each wavy lock of the beautiful hair which had so charmed her husband was changed into a venomous snake. Her once gentle, love-inspiring eyes now became bloodshot, furious orbs, which excited fear and disgust in the mind of the beholder, whilst her former rosette hue and milk-white skin assumed a loathsome green tinge. Seeing herself thus transformed into so repulsive an object, Medusa fled from her home never to return. Wandering about, abhorred, dreaded, and shunned by all the world, she now developed into a character worthy of her outward appearance. In her despair, she fled to Africa, where, as she passed restlessly from place to place, infant snakes dropped from her hair, and thus, according to the belief of the ancients, 
that country became the hotbed of these venomous reptiles. With the curse of Athene upon her, she turned into stone whomsoever she gazed upon, till at last, after a life of nameless misery, deliverance came to her in the shape of death at the hands of Perseus. It is well to observe that when the Gorgons are spoken of in the singular, it is Medusa who is alluded to. Medusa was the mother of Pegasus and Chrysaor, father of the three-headed winged giant Geryones, who was slain by Heracles. Grii The Grii, who acted as servants to their sisters, the Gorgons, were also three in number. Their names were Perfredo, Enyo, and Dino. In their original conception they were merely personifications of kindly and venerable old age, possessing all its benevolent attributes without its natural infirmities. They were old and grey from their birth, and so they ever remained. In later times, however, they came to be regarded as misshapen females, decrepit and hideously ugly, having only one eye, one tooth, and one grey wig between them which they lent to each other, when one of them wished to appear before the world. When Perseus entered upon this expedition to slay the Medusa, he repaired to the adobe of the Grii, in the far west, to inquire the way to the Gorgons, and on their refusing to give any information, he deprived them of their one eye, tooth, and wig, and did not restore them until he received the necessary directions. Sphinx the Sphinx was an ancient Egyptian divinity, who personified wisdom and the fertility of nature. She is represented as a lion cochant, with the head and bust of a woman, and wears a peculiar sort of hood, which completely envelops her head, and falls down on either side of the face. Transplanted into Greece, this sublime and mysterious Egyptian deity degenerates into an insignificant and yet malignant power and though she also deals in mysteries, they are, as we shall see, of a totally different character, and altogether inimical to human life. The Sphinx is represented, according to Greek genealogy, as the offspring of Typhon and Echidna. Hera, being upon one occasion displeased with the Thebans, sent them this awful monster as a punishment for their offences taking her seat on a rocky eminence near the city of Thebes, commanding a pass which the Thebans were compelled to traverse in their usual way of business. She propounded to all comers a riddle, and if they failed, to solve it she tore them in pieces. During the reign of King Creon, so many people had fallen a sacrifice to this monster that he determined to use every effort to rid the country of so terrible a scourge, on consulting the oracle of Delphi, he was informed that the only way to destroy the Sphinx was to solve one of her riddles, when she would immediately precipitate herself from the rock on which she was seated. Creon, accordingly, made a public declaration to the effect that whoever could give the true interpretation of a riddle propounded by the monster should obtain the crown and the hand of his sister, Jocaste. Oedipus offered himself as a candidate, and, proceeding to the spot where she kept guard, 
received from her the following riddle for solution. What creature goes in the morning on four legs, at noon on two, and in the evening on three? Oedipus replied that it must be man, who during his infancy creeps on all fours, in his prime walks erect on two legs, and when old age has enfeebled his powers, calls a staff to his assistance, and thus has, as it were, three legs. The Sphinx no sooner heard this reply, which was the correct solution of her riddle, than she flung herself over the precipice, and perished in the abyss below. The Greek Sphinx may be recognised by having wings, and by being of smaller dimensions than the Egyptian Sphinx. Tyche, Fortuna, and Ananke, Necessitus. Tyche Fortuna. Tyche personified that peculiar combination of circumstances which we call luck or fortune, and was considered to be the source of all unexpected events in human life, whether good or evil. If a person succeeded in all he undertook without possessing any special merit of his own, Tyche was supposed to have smiled on his birth. If, on the other hand, undeserved ill luck followed him through life, and all his efforts resulted in failure, it was ascribed to her adverse influence. This goddess of fortune is variously represented. Sometimes she is depicted bearing in her hand two rudders, with one of which she steers the bark of the fortunate, and with the other that of the unfortunate among mortals. In later times she appears blindfolded, and stands on a ball or wheel, indicative of the fickleness of ever-revolving changes of fortune. She frequently bears the sceptre and cornucopia, or horn of plenty, and is usually winged. In her temple at Thebes, she is represented holding infant Plutus in her arms, to symbolize her power over riches and prosperity. Tyche was worshipped in various parts of Greece, but more particularly by the Athenians, who believed in her special predilection for their city. Fortuna Tyche was worshipped in Rome under the name of Fortuna, and held a position of much greater importance among the Romans than the Greeks. In later times, Fortuna is never represented either winged or standing on a ball. She merely bears the cornucopa. It is evident, therefore, that she had come to be regarded as the goddess of good luck only, who brings blessings to man, and not, as with the Greeks, as the personification of the fluctuations of fortune. In addition to Fortuna, the Romans worshipped Felicitas as the river of positive good fortune. Ananke, Necessitas as an Anki, Tyche assumes quite another character, and becomes the embodiment of those immutable laws of nature, by which certain causes produce certain inevitable results. In a statue of this divinity at Athens, she was represented with hands of bronze, and surrounded with nails and hammers. The hands of bronze probably indicated the irresistible power of the inevitable, and the hammer and chains 
the fetters which she forged for man. Ananke was worshipped in Rome under the name of Necessitas. Kerr In addition to the Moiri, who presided over the life of mortals, there was another divinity called Kerr, appointed for each human being at the moment of his birth. The Kerr, belonging to an individual, was believed to develop with his growth, either for good or evil, and when the ultimate fate of a mortal was about to be decided, his cur was weighed in the balance, and, according to the preponderance of its worth or worthlessness, life or death was awarded to the human being in question. It becomes evident, therefore, that according to the belief of the early Greeks, each individual had in his power, to a certain extent, to shorten or prolong his own existence. The Ceres, who are frequently mentioned by Homer, were the goddesses who delighted in the slaughter of the battlefield. Aeti Aeti, the daughter of Zeus and Eris, was a divinity who delighted in evil. Having instigated Hera to deprive Heracles of his birthright, her father seized her by the hair of her head and hurled her from Olympus, forbidding her under the most solemn imprecations ever to return. Henceforth she wandered among mankind, sowing dissension, working mischief, and luring men to all actions inimical to their welfare and happiness. Hence, when a reconciliation took place between friends who had quarrelled, Aeti was blamed as the original cause of disagreement. Momus Momus, the son of Nix, was the god of raillery and ridicule, who delighted to criticise, with bitter sarcasm, the actions of gods and men, and contrived to discover in all things some defect or blemish. Thus, when Prometheus created the first man, Momus considered his work incomplete, because there was no aperture in the breast through which his inmost thoughts might be read. He also found fault with a house built by Athene, because being unprovided with the means of locomotion, it could never be removed from an unhealthy locality. Aphrodite alone defied his criticism, for, to his great chagrin, he could find no fault with her perfect form. In what manner the ancients represented this god is unknown. In modern art, he is depicted like a king's jester, with a fool's cap and bells. Eros, Cupid, Amor, and Psyche According to Hesiod's Theogony, Eros, the divine spirit of love, sprang forth from chaos, while all were still in confusion, and by his beneficent power reduced to order and harmony the shapeless conflicting elements, which, under his influence, began to assume distinct forms. This ancient Eros is represented as a full-grown and very beautiful youth, crowned with flowers and leaning on a shepherd's crook. In the course of time, this beautiful conception gradually faded away, and though occasional mention still continues to be made of the Eros of Chaos, he is replaced by the son of Aphrodite, the popular, mischief-loving little god of love so familiar to us all. 
In one of the myths concerning Eros, Aphrodite is described as complaining to Themis that her son, though so beautiful, did not appear to increase in stature, whereupon Themis suggested that his small proportions were probably attributable to the fact of his being always alone, and advised his mother to let him have a companion. Aphrodite accordingly gave him as a playfellow his younger brother Anteros, requited love, and soon had the gratification of seeing the little Eros begin to grow and thrive. But curious to relate, this desirable result only continued as long as the brothers remained together. For the moment they were separated, Eros shrank once more to his original size. By degrees the conception of Eros became multiplied, and we hear of little love-gods, amors, who appear under the most charming and diversified forms. These love-gods, who afforded to artists inexhaustible subjects for the exercise of their imagination, are represented as being engaged in various occupations, such as hunting, fishing, rowing, driving chariots, and even busying themselves in mechanical labour. Perhaps no myth is more charming and interesting than that of Eros and Psyche, which is as follows. Psyche, the youngest of three princesses, was so transcendently beautiful that Aphrodite herself became jealous of her, and no mortal dared to aspire to the honour of her hand. As her sisters, who were by no means equal to her in attractions, were married, and Psyche still remained unwedded, her father consulted the oracle of Delphi, and, in obedience to the divine response, caused her to be dressed as though for the grave, and conducted to the edge of a yawning precipice. No sooner was she alone than she felt herself lifted up, and wafted away by the gentle west wind Zephyrus, who transported her to a verdant meadow, in the midst of which stood a stately palace, surrounded by groves and fountains. Here dwelt Eros, the god of love, in whose arms Zephyrus deposited his lovely burden. Eros, himself unseen, wooed her in the softest accents of affection, but warned her, as she valued his love, not to endeavour to behold his form. For some time Psyche was obedient to the injunction of her immortal spouse, and made no effort to gratify her natural curiosity. But unfortunately, in the midst of her happiness, she was seized with an unconquerable longing for the society of her sisters, and in accordance with her desire, they were conducted by Zephyrus to her fairy-like abode. Filled with envy at the sight of her felicity, they poisoned her mind against her husband, and telling her that her unseen lover was a frightful monster, they gave her a sharp dagger, which they persuaded her to use for the purpose of delivering herself from his power. After the departure of her sisters, Psyche resolved to take the first opportunity of following their malicious counsel. She accordingly rose in the dead of night, and taking a lamp in one hand and a dagger in the other, stealthily approached the couch where Eros was reposing when, instead of the frightful monster she had expected to see, the beauteous form of the god of love greeted her view. Overcome with surprise and admiration, Psyche stooped down to gaze more closely on his lovely features, when, from the lamp which she held in her trembling hand, 
there fell a drop of burning oil upon the shoulder of the sleeping god, who instantly awoke, and seeing Psyche standing over him with the instrument of death in her hand, sorrowfully reproached her for her treacherous designs, and, spreading out his wings, flew away. In despair at having lost her lover, the unhappy Psyche endeavoured to put an end to her existence by throwing herself into the nearest river, but instead of closing over her, the waters bore her gently to the opposite bank, where Pan, the god of shepherds, received her, and consoled her with the hope of becoming eventually reconciled to her husband. Meanwhile, her wicked sisters, in expectation of meeting with the same good fortune which had befallen Psyche, placed themselves on the edge of the rock, but were both precipitated into the chasm below. Psyche herself, filled with a restless yearning for her lost love, wandered all over the world in search of him. At length she appealed to Aphrodite to take compassion on her, but the goddess of beauty, still jealous of her charms, imposed upon her the hardest tasks, the accomplishment of which often appeared impossible. In these she was always assisted by invisible, beneficent beings, sent to her by Eros, who still loved her, and continued to watch over her welfare. Psyche had to undergo a long and severe penance, before she became worthy to regain the happiness which she had so foolishly trifled away. At last Aphrodite commanded her to descend into the underworld, and obtain from Persephone a box containing all the charms of beauty. Psyche's courage now failed her, for she concluded that death must, of necessity, precede her entrance into the realm of shades. About to abandon herself to despair, she heard a voice which warned her of every danger to be avoided on her perilous journey, and instructed her with regard to certain precautions to be observed. These were as follows. Not to omit to provide herself with the ferryman's toll for Charon, and the cake to pacify Seborus, also to refrain from taking any part in the banquets of Aedes and Persephone, and above all things to bring the box of beauty charms unopened to Aphrodite. In conclusion, the voice assured her that compliance with the above conditions would ensure for her a safe return to the realms of light. But, alas, Psyche, who had implicitly followed all injunctions, could not withstand the temptation of the last condition, and hardly had she quitted the lower world, when, unable to resist the curiosity which devoured her, she raised the lid of the box with eager expectation. But, instead of the wondrous charms of beauty which she expected to behold, there issued from the casket a dense black vapour, which had the effect of throwing her into a death-like sleep, out of which Eros, who had long hovered round her unseen, at length awoke her with the point of one of his golden arrows. He gently reproached her with this second proof of her curiosity and folly, and then, Having persuaded Aphrodite to be reconciled to his beloved, he induced Zeus to admit her among the immortal gods. Their reunion was celebrated amidst the rejoicings of all the Olympian deities, 
the graces shed perfume on their path. The hours sprinkled roses over the sky. Apollo added the music of his lyre, and the muses united their voices in a glad chorus of delight. This myth would appear to be an allegory, which signifies that the soul, before it can be reunited to its original divine essence, must be purified by the chastening sorrows and sufferings of its earthly career. Eros is represented as a lovely boy, with rounded limbs and a merry, roguish expression. He has golden wings and a quiver slung over his shoulder, which contained his magical and unerring arrows. In one hand he bears his golden bow, and in the other a torch. He is also frequently depicted riding on a lion, dolphin, or eagle, or seated in a chariot drawn by stags or wild boars, undoubtedly emblematical of the power of love as the subduer of all nature, even of the wild animals. In Rome, Eros is worshipped under the name of Amor or Cupid. End of section 15